Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie that Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 uh, Joe Johnston-directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Now, Jim, we've got a guest this evening, don't we? We do, we do. Uh, an old friend. Uh, a frequent uh, participant on uh, my my other podcast, The Airport Minute, and uh, he was actually a creator and operator of one of the world's longest-running uh, podcasts, uh, at least the longest-running baseball podcast that I know of, uh, Sully Baseball, which uh, you can still listen to back episodes. There is quite a catalog out there to listen to, so catch up on that. Um, and please welcome my good friend, uh, Paul Francis Sullivan, otherwise known as Sully. Sully, how are you? Hey, I'm I am talking Rocketeer. Yeah, we did the Sully Baseball Daily podcast for 1,622 straight days, and I decided to I, that was enough of that, and uh, I'm gonna try to do something new. And so this this uh, we're still doing a weekly podcast, but we're gonna relaunch the podcast soon as kind of a call-in show and a, and a and an audience participation show, and a little something different. I'm gonna be doing some more video projects every year. I do an in-memoriam video for the all-star game like the at the oscars ah. where they do an in-memoriam and that came up one year uh tony gwynn i'm not gonna go too deep in the baseball but tony gwynn the great former san diego padre hall of famer died like just before the all-star game hmm. and they didn't mention him they didn't say anything wow. and i thought that, what a disgrace that was and they they had some some fakaka excuse and I said, what they should do is have an in-memoriam video. And instead of just talking about it, me and my friend Raphael made one. And just that night, and it got us a little bit of attention. So now every year, I've done it, we've done three of them. And there's going to be another one that's going to be ready for this year's All-Star Game. And there's, you know, Jim Bunning and, yeah. and uh, you know, Jose Fernandez and some other, you know, big names have passed away this year. So so we're going to be more video projects and, and a lot of other stuff for Sully Baseball. So nice. there you go. Wow, yeah, well, you always got to try try another another format. People people always like change and stuff like that. But it sounds great. Absolutely, wow. absolutely. Well, well, we're back we're back in the we're back in the past here in uh, in the Rocketeer. We're at uh, minute thirty one. Good old good old PV is taking apart what looks like either a toaster or maybe a uh, a heater or some kind of a I don't know something bigger than a bread box or maybe it is a bread box. Yeah. Maybe a bread box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's uh, he's working away at this. And Sully, I know this is one of your favorite movies. Um, in well, it it was. I, I gotta just first out and just say when when I did about what maybe four episodes of the airport minute, including what yeah. I think is the best scene of the movie when Helen Hayes tricks the, you know, I call him Al Jardine from the Beach oh, Boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. You know, it has it pulls him pulls him down yeah. on the on the thing and then sneaks out of the bathroom and then poor um, Van Heflin. Uh, with a Spanish name that I still don't understand how that happened is is buying insurance from Sexy Bunny yeah. at the airport and those are two of my favorite scenes. So I when when I heard you were doing a Rocketeer podcast, I think I think I wrote instantly. I think yeah. I made it. The first, I think first I think I just up. mentioned I was thinking about doing a Rocketeer and they was like sign me up. So please I, yeah. please because I have to just say this because the, this is this is a hundred percent true the. the the experience, The Rocketeer isn't my favorite movie, but it is one of my favorite experiences in a movie theater that I've ever had in my life. 
And okay. I, that's not hyperbole. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'll explain why. Because this film came out in 1991. I would just finish my freshman year of college, and I, was, I went back home to Palo Alto. And I went back home to Palo Alto from New York University for the summer. And I got together with my old high school buddies, and we were all big Mystery Science Theater fans. Uh, and sure. we we liked to go to a couple of theaters in the Silicon Valley that, like, you know, you could get bargain tickets or you can kind of movie hop. And we would look for films that we thought were going to be turkeys and have fun with it. And my buddies, Grant Kaloff and Greg Lee and Corey Mahegan and I, we went to the theater in Mountain View, California, expecting to just be poking fun at it. And within like five minutes, we were all hushed. And then by the time he's flying around and says, I like it, as he crashes into the swamp, we were applauding. And by the time uh, Paul Sorvino gives the line, you know, I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American. It was like someone hit a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth <laughs> inning. Like the place <laughs> just, like the crowd we saw was, was very receptive. And I was laughing and applauding. And by the end of it, we were like, that's what summer movies should be like. There, It was fun. It was well-written. It was well-acted. It was exciting when it needed to be. It was clever when it needed to be. It was romantic when it needed to be. And I was like, if every summer movie was like that, summer would be the most wonderful time of the year movie-wise. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. You, you, want, you get out of that the movie theater, and you just want to fist bump somebody after seeing this thing. It's just so... And when you're, when you're expecting something lousy, and you get something great. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like, it's wonderful. And there, there's one other element. I promise I won't go too deep into this dive here, but there was one other element that made it really great for me personally. Because you don't see movies in vacuums. You see them... Your experience of what's happening around you colors how you experience the movie. And that was the same. I don't remember exactly when it came out, like maybe a few weeks before. But the dreadful um, Kevin Costner Robin Hood film came out <laughs> like maybe a month before. Yeah. I, I may, I may be yeah, wrong. Two, two weeks. Two weeks. It was two weeks before. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That in Palo Alto, I don't know if you've ever been to Palo Alto, but there's a movie theater. It's still there. And all they do is show old movies. It's just they just do a revival house, mm. and they show classic films like It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll have a week of Garbo films, have a week of Marx Brothers films, Ernst Lubitsch films, and to counter program the Kevin Costner Robin Hood, they did a week of Errol Flynn films. Oh, oh perfect! <laughs> including a great print of The Adventures of Robin Hood, which holds up. And there was a bunch of kids who went to see, it, and they don't know it's a, it's an old movie or a new movie. And so they just saw it as a movie and, and, you know, laughed and clapped and cheered in all the right places. And I went to go see Ventures of Robin Hood and Seahawk and Captain Blood, Captain Blood yeah. and Charge oh, of the Light yeah. Brigade, all of these great Errol Flynn films, like a week before I saw The Rocketeer. Oh, and perfect. so I'm already <laughs> in the mood and, and really was taken by the Errol Flynn films. So when Timothy Dalton is in it as Neville Sinclair doing a perfect Errol Flynn and doing the whole, what was it, the, 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 laughing, the laughing bandit? Yeah, the laughing, laughing bandit. Yeah. Laughing bandit. I just was like, so I got every little reference, inclu you know, including the, 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 the shaky Nazi background, but <laughs> it just it made it perfect. And it also made me think, we walked out and said, why did they put Timothy Dalton in the Robin Hood movie? I mean, he would have been so much better. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, his his, uh, his accent is way more consistent than Kevin Costner's, that's for and, sure. And he, he basically auditioned for it for his role in Flash Gordon. Cause yeah, he was oh, yeah. In, Prince Baron, in yeah. yeah. Prince that's Baron right. was, was perfect. Oh, you know, man. My, my friend Grant Kaloff, who's a, who's a graphic novel writer himself, he'd probably be a good guest for the show. To this day, he's married, he has two kids, he's you know, a good family man. To this day, in his living room, is the Rocketeer poster wow. with oh. the, the, the beautiful Art Deco Rocketeer yes. poster yeah. is right there. And I told him I was doing this podcast because he, he's a big fan of my baseball podcast. And he listened to me on Airport and the Indiana Jones and all the other ones I've done. And I told him I'm doing Rocketeer. And he just was like, it's the biggest grin. You know, <laughs> it's a, I don't know anyone who dislikes the Rocketeer. There are two groups of people, people who like the Rocketeer and people who haven't seen the Rocketeer, I don't know anyone who says, "Ah, the Rocketeer stinks." Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, it, it, well, you know, it, it's right. fun. It, it's the the great thing with the Rocketeer. If you meet people that haven't seen it, I almost want to sit backwards in a chair and watch them watch the Rocketeer because it they they have that you know, that first time seeing, just like you were talking about in the theater. Yeah. You just you just get up and you just want to punch your fist in the air and say, "Yeah, go go go!" You know, you're you're, you're go right get there. Him, with, kid. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. And, I saw it three times in the theater, wow. I, and each time I brought a different friend with me because I had that same feeling. Like you don't like because I think Terminator came out. Terminator Two came out like maybe a week later or two weeks yeah, later, right and took all the thunder away from Rocketeer. And I dragged like four or five of my friends. I went to see it three times in the theater, and each and I never went alone. And every time I took someone to see it, they're like, "Yeah, that was really good. That was really good." You know, and and I'm. Man, I hope it gets the the retroactive revival that and you know I I felt that same way about Tron. I was a big fan of Tron, which is now getting it's got its due. Yeah. Uh, but I don't necessarily want a reboot or a sequel. I just want people to see this movie. Yeah, it's you know? like it's like I mean this is like Jaws. It's like it, it has such a it's such a tightly knit you know the, the storyline fl- flows really smooth. It's almost like like yeah. Back to the Future. It's just you've got characters right. that you yeah. care about. You've got you know, you got people you can boo at. You've got all these story arcs like uh, like Eddie Valentine. You know, he's like the bad guy, then he's the good guy, and he's you know, it's all this kind of stuff where you have these these characters grow and change within the movie, and you want to see them succeed, and you know what all their weaknesses are. So it's just it's perfect for sitting down, like you said, a perfect summer movie where you just get this sense of satisfaction at the end. You're like, yeah, and that that little hint at the very end of saying, well, maybe there's going to be some more adventures that we're going to watch. Yeah, and, and even though we didn't I re-watch- get that, I rewatched it beginning to end um, last week when I knew I was going to be on there just to refresh myself. And, you know, because I like to, you know, I did that with Airport and with, with Raiders as well. And it just flew by. You know, it just, it's so lean. And it's just so, but, you know, it's funny. The scene we we have here, which second is this? What, what minute is this? 30, 31. Minute 31, yeah. It, it's kind of a you know, quiet, quiet scene. Very, very quiet scene, but it shows you one of the reasons why this is a good movie, in that it's it's a just a very simple scene between Alan Arkin and Bill Campbell. He was Bill then; he wasn't Billy. And yeah, um, Bill and, and, and by the way, the the Red Sox had an all star pitcher named Bill Campbell in the late seventies, early eighties. So oh. I thought, hmm, I wonder if they're related, but evidently they're not. It's it's a very simple scene, but it shows one of the strengths of the film, and that is. You get it. It knows the difference between character development and exposition. There's a big difference. You know, they, there's no scene where it's like, PV, remember when you were in World War One 
And then you came over here and became a barnstormer, yeah. and I worked on your fuel, and I came over here. That's right, and I and I was friends with your dad, who died in a fire, and your mother had <laughs> pancreatic cancer. Yeah. There's no conversation like that. There's never a scene that explains why these two guys are living in a, in a home together and are the best of friends, because that's not character development. Character development is they can talk to each other like him saying, in this scene, if, you know, if this girl gets away, you know, she doesn't care about those phony balonies, but if she gets away, it's your fault, like a little jab at him. And then he gives a jab back and says, well, what do you know? You haven't dated anyone since, you know, so, they, so it's that sort of jabs that only friends can have. And then Alan Arkin has one of the most beautiful moments of the movie where he remembers, you know. What's her name? Uh, Flora Maxwell. Yeah, Flora, Flora Maxwell. Like, you think it's a joke. You haven't dated since this. Like, it's an exaggeration. Like, nope, that's a specific memory. And why, you know, why hasn't she dated since her? Is she married? Is she dead? Why does it not matter after her? It doesn't matter because this is the way real people talk to each other. And so that's character development, not lazy exposition. And and that yeah, that's no, and you agree. see that throughout it when they go to the Bulldog Cafe, when they say, Oh, we haven't done the clown thing in a while. I mean, that to me it doesn't you don't need to know every piece of the backstory. And that is like Jaws, where you don't have to have everything spoon fed to you. You have to you know, sometimes it just happens because characters interact. You know, I uh, yeah. love this uh, love the scene between the two of them for it, Exactly what you're describing, Sully. This, you know, when when Cliff hits him that line, you know, you haven't had a date since 1932. You know, the music could get sad there, and Peavy could look hurt, and we're supposed to say, "Wow, Cliff's a jerk, and he's hurt Peavy and everything else." And instead, he just he just makes it perfect. He just makes it beautiful. He gets that look in his eye, and it's Cliff is trying to dig at him, and it's not a dig. He said, "Flora Maxwell, you know, no point in dating nobody after her." And it's this just wonderful little wistful thing, and. Uh, and we understand from Billy that Alan actually, uh, and we may be spoiling a future minute, sorry, recording out of order, but uh, that Alan actually ad-libbed that line or, or came up with that himself, whether it was just the name or the whole thing. But like I said, you expect this to be an ugly scene, and instead it's just, it's just wonderful. Yeah, and it's and it's a quite it allows one of the things that I, when I rewatched the movie. There is a timeless quality to this film that makes it kind of Raiders-like, that it takes place in the late 30s, has that that Hollywood romance to it and everything like that. But there's also a sense of it being a time capsule of... It's funny that that Terminator came out, like, Terminator 2 came out, like, two weeks afterwards, which led to the avalanche of CGI special effects. And this there's a great sense of almost nostalgia for old-fashioned ILM special effects in this film. That yeah, it, it really is. Models, it's... models, practical effects, and things like right. that. And they didn't need every shot to be the most spectacular spinning around thing. They could just allow things to unfold. Yeah, well, the only so... the the only I'm sorry the only the yeah. only special effect in this entire scene is the dissolve from you know yeah. uh, uh, Alan right. Arkin falling so, to falling asleep, which is so perfectly framed. You know, nobody dared bump that camera because that was just perfectly set. But it, it's funny too. You talk about this. You know, this is one of the last, I don't want to go out too far on a limb, but, you know, right at that end of the sort of all practical effects era before, uh, before CG, as you said, really came yeah. in and how, how 
perfect is. It's if this unintentional, presumably subtext, where not only do we have that, but in the movie itself, we have an homage to the movies of 50 years before that. Yeah, you know, we're making a movie within the movie, and we get to see even older time filmmaking. I think that's what there's these layers of nostalgia in it. It's you know the movie was made 25 years ago using techniques you know sort of pioneered 10, 15, 20 years before that, and takes place 40 years before that, and shows you movie making from that era, and it just you just keep going. And you see like the movies, like you see how they would have made a film like Adventures of Robin Hood in the background. And you, you, they exactly. bump into Clark Gable and W.C. Fields at the at the club. And it's it's nostalgia on many levels. It's kind of like how Happy Days was nostalgic for the 50s. And now we watch it as nostalgia of the 70s. Right. You know, you know we're being nostalgic for nostalgia. You know, it's like one of those. It's like a Russian doll sort of like, you know, opening up the next level, the next level, the next level. But yeah, I. I I was transported back to that, you know, I was 19 years old, just finished my freshman year of college at film school, just had, you know, idealistic about, you know, what kind of movies and everything. And, and just knowing that there were, you know, seasons of filmmaking, like there was, there were times where there were summer movies that were kind of fun blockbusters. And then there were fall movies that were kind of a lot of indie films and everything. And I was feeling nostalgic for that. And it was, and, and it was just, Man, I, I just I'm gushing over this movie. Yeah, no, <laughs> well, that's it, what we're here for, right? Yeah, it 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 does seem to have a lot of it brings back a lot of great memories about about the time that this was made and also the time that it's set in. I was um, afraid to watch this. I'm not going to lie, because there was uh, because there have been times there's some films that I remember really liking when I was younger, and then you watch it again, and you go like, oh man, that did not age well. That did not <laughs> age well. And every once in a while, you watch a film. And you're like, oh, it held up. It held up. Like, I had a terrible experience rewatching Chariots of Fire, which is oh. a film I really loved when I was younger. And then I rewatched it, and I was like, wow, um, nothing happens in this movie. Yeah, uh, it's, it's tedious. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and really, God, I used to love this movie. And then I rewatched War Games, and that was still great. In fact, I watched, oh, that, with, yeah. I, I watched that with my kids, and my kids loved it. But so there's it, I'm always surprised what movies hold up. And I was a little like, oh, boy, what if I watch it? And it was what if my memories of it were just because I was expecting it to be garbage? And then now I watch it. Well, I guess no, it's not that great. I just loved it all over again. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, the, the other thing about it is that you can recommend it to other people. I always feel good. Like you don't have to say, you know, if, if, if you're watching, I love the movie Big Trouble in Little China, but I don't know if I could recommend it to anybody because you have to be in a certain frame of mind to watch that movie and understand yeah. what they're trying to drive at. So if if you met somebody, you know, you're sitting on an airplane, you turn next to somebody, you say, have you ever seen a Big Trouble in Little China? Great movie. You figure they might go home and go, what is this stuff? I don't understand it. But <laughs> I'm that way with Time Bandits. I'm that yeah. way with Time Bandits. Oh, yeah, so that's another one. I love Time Bandits, but that is not for everybody. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of the Terry Gilliam ones are like that, like Brazil. China, I, you know. Yeah, Brazil's one of my favorite movies. But it's, if I'm like hanging out at a party and say, hey, what film should I? Hey, have you seen Brazil? You know what you should do? You and your honey should get some haagen <laughs> <laughs> Throw the top away. Get yourself underneath the uh, the you know your blanket and watch yourself some Brazil. Yeah, yes, it's the to... feel good hit of the season. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to know somebody pretty well for that. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But the, you could lose a friendship with that. Yeah, the <laughs> Rocketeer. You could tell somebody you know they've got a wife and kids. They they're by themselves. Whatever whatever it is, you say you should watch the Rocketeer. It's really, you're, by the time this is over, you're going to be in a good mood. Yeah. 
and uh, and it, and, it, and it has that rewatchability too. You could watch it, you know, a week from now. You could put it on again and go, oh, I can watch this again. Let me let's just so. talk a little about this minute specifically too, because as we said before, it's a very quiet scene where there's character development, not exposition. Let's just, I mean, look at Alan Arkin is obviously an amazing Oscar-winning actor and and someone who I. I you know, I'm a big fan of the film Catch-22. Talk about a film you have to be careful with who to recommend it to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but Alan Arkin is, is just breathtaking in that movie. And, and you know, and he's he's just one of these guys. He's all, you know, the in-laws. He's just always reliable. And so when you put him in a movie, you know he's going to, you know, you, you know he's kind of like the middle square in a bingo card. You know you're going to yeah. get a great performance. But the person is really worth saluting is Bill Campbell because he carries this movie and I I rewatched him and I realized man this this film is ahead of its time because Bill Campbell would have been perfect in the Chris's of the Hemsworths and the Chris Evans and the Chris Pines and all of them <clears throat> of the really good looking dude who can carry a movie heroically but with a but not afraid to play with a little bit of egg on his face and he can play the romantic scenes romantic he can play the comedic scenes very funny and yet still when he you know when you know he has to be the hero you know he can step up the game and in a scene where he has to play a tender friendship moment with a little bit of humor he can pull that off and that's not easy you know you know if what I have to say is the difference between Bill Campbell and Sam J. Jones in Flash Gordon, who is, you know, a good looking dude who can't act his way out of a paper bag. You know, that when you have an unknown actor who's being asked to carry an adventure film, that's not easy to do. And he he really did it and rewatching again, I'm like, man, you know, I know he's still working now and I and he's he's and he's you know, he's having a nice career. I mean, I'm not going to cry for Billy Campbell, but man, if he, if the Rocketeer came out now, I mean, it would have been Captain America first Avenger. I mean, obviously Joe Johnston did that, but you know, that's, it's like that film would have been perfect as a release today. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. When I watch this and we try to think about, uh, (laughs) as we've heard that toy poodle, Johnny Depp uh, in the role. Uh, you know, Depp has a lot of range and he's versatile and everything else, but I just, I cannot picture it. I just he cannot either. make that adjustment in my head to think about that. Because he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the, the aw shucks quality that Cliff Secord should yeah, have. Yeah, that, that humility. I mean, when, when, when he walks in in a future minute, when, when he talks to uh, Howard Hughes and he said, do you know, and Howard Hughes asked him, do you know who I am? And he, he says, what, what pilot doesn't he you get the idea that he's kind of in awe of howard hughes and i can't picture johnny depp being in awe of anybody in a movie and that's i would uh, picture him as neville sinclair today i would picture him as howard hughes today but yeah. uh, johnny depp yeah. but yeah, yeah, I, I you need to have that that the aw shucks gee whiz quality is essential because it allows you to have a moment like him standing in front of the american flag on the Griffith Observatory and blasting off to the 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 Zeppelin. Yeah. You, you got to have there's got to be a I don't want to say corny, but there's got to be a little bit of 
Yeah, he is that 1930s swashbuckling hero that we're that we're seeing. He is what Neville Sinclair is pretending to be. Yeah, I, I agree. This this whole movie is just almost a a trophy winner in terms of casting. The the you know have, having him on there, having Alan Arkin in the thing, uh, even you know Jennifer Connelly, she's just this 40s looking girl. You know, she's yep. 30, 30 and 40. She's she's voluptuous, but she also has this this face where she doesn't express a lot of things, but you can see stuff going on in her head. Like, like that scene we were just talking about with the South seas where they bump into Clark Gable and, and WC fields. The, the one scene where um, Neville walks by Clark Gable and Clark goes Neville and he said, hello Clark. Yep. And if you, if you watch that scene with Jennifer Connelly, Jen, Jenny Blake is like processing this in her head. She's like, that's Clark. Gable and it, you know it's like you can see it going on in her head but she doesn't say anything because it's like she's supposed to be suave and sophisticated and somebody who actually could be growing bored of the uh the South right. Seas Club right. yeah you could just see her telling herself you know don't scream don't giggle don't do anything else and you know it's come up a few times on the show we, we talk about her having sort of an Elizabeth Taylor quality yeah. Uh, you know from that era and I and I see that and I, I agree completely but I would say that there's she's like an accessible Elizabeth Taylor, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. Not she's like she's not a poor man's Elizabeth Taylor, but she's an Elizabeth Taylor that you don't want to frame and hang on the wall. Uh, that you might actually want to spend some time with. Yeah, and a diner with some soup, that kind of thing. And yeah, a diner just, with yeah. some soup and a wooden yeah. wheel thrown in. What the heck? Yeah. And you yeah. know the other thing I was I said that you don't watch these films in vacuum, so you 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 carry the baggage of some of the um, of some of the actors when they come in. And just remember, the, this came out in 91, and the year before, you had two of the great gangster films of all time, Goodfellas and Miller's Crossing, came out within, I think, within a week of each other, if I remember correctly. And, of course, you have the Valentine was originally offered to Joe Pesci. Yeah. Um, and all due respect to Joe Pesci, and who knows, he may have done something amazing with it. But I'm so happy that it was played by Paul Sorvino. And I'm so happy that Bigelow was played by John Polito, who is so brilliant in Miller's Crossing. Yeah. And you, when you take actors who can hold their own in a Scorsese film and a Coen Brothers film, and you put them in a Disney adventure film, it just shows that they cared. It just showed that they said, you know what, we're going to, we're, we're going to give a damn with this film. And we're, and what Sorvino brings to the role and a strange warmthness, which is similar to what he did in Goodfellas, of which Pauly Cicero is a terrifying character who every once in a while could be very warm and charming. I, I, as I said before, the scene with when he turns the table on Neville Sinclair was one of the biggest applause. I never, I didn't even know he had a line after I may not be, I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American. There, I didn't yeah. know he had a line afterwards because everyone was too busy to clap it and cheer it at that, at that brilliant, <laughs> That brilliant line. And I'll give, there's another name I'm going to bring up. I don't know if you've mentioned it yet, but at the time I was also very much into Mike Nesmith, uh, listening to a lot of his solo work and seeing a lot of the creative video stuff that he did, like Elephant Parts and other sure. things that he did. Sure. That was written and directed by William Deere, who was one of the screenwriters of The Rocketeer. There is a kind of a postmodern humor that is in the Nesmith stuff that creeps into the Rocketeer, like you were saying, Clark Gable and some of the humor, like, you know, when, you know, a lot of the Howard Hughes stuff that would have fit well in the Mike Nesmith videos. And I just 
wonder how much of that is the William Deere's contribution to the script. Yeah, it doesn't take its. I mean, it in in parts there's there's a seriousness to the thing, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. This movie knows that it is a comic book, and the the character reactions are real, no matter how crazy the environment is. And like you said, there there seems to be little injections of crazy. You know, it, it's like it's not that it's not only that the Rocketeer is going to go rescue somebody in, 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 trapped in a plane. They're actually you know trapped in a plane dressed like a clown <laughs> it's yeah it's like it's a little oddball little you know batman-esque even um but you but... want to say that what i'll say about that jim i didn't mean to cut you off there but what i'll say about that is that re-watching this i forgot about this moment and i'm skipping ahead folks but i'm sorry we, this is there were four lines in the minute that we had here <laughs> um it's a wonderful scene but you know there's not that yeah. much more to talk about it i i hadn't watched the movie from beginning to end in a while as i said and i had forgotten about the scene when Cliff saves Malcolm from the from the airplane, he dumps him on the whatever that the thing. gas bag, yeah, gas sure. bag. Thank you. And the reporters come up to him, and I forgot what Malcolm's reaction was until I saw it yesterday. It's one of the most real reactions. He's not screaming, he's not laughing, he's just kind of shaking and kind of giggling, like I don't know what just happened, but that was really great. <laughs> it's it's a real. It's like it's something that me and my friend. Richie Duncan, who would actually be a very good guest on this show, comedian and writer, we would we used to play games called "What would you really do if?" Like, what would you really do if I threw this glass in your face? What would you really do if I tried to light you on fire? And <laughs> and we would say stuff like that, like and then we would say like, you know, I would run, I would roll on the ground, like don't no joking around. If I picked up this chair and just threw it at you right now, what would you really do? You know, that, and, that sounds like a really good podcast. I think you really need to jump on that. That's right, right. <laughs> That reaction reminded me of how would you really react if someone dropped you, like if someone like a rocket man picked you up from the crashing plane and dropped you. And that's how you probably would really react. You'd probably be shaken, scared, but like giddy. And with that, there's instead of it being comedic or being over the top or being silly, it was like the whole film. It felt real and had so much humanity that it it. You know, their details like that, they add up. The yeah, court. it's exhilar- it, the exhilaration that you feel from that. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's how it works. And this thing really does work better than he had ever imagined. You know, he takes off and then flies into the clouds. And, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But, the, you know, just flying past the uh, uh, the Ford Trimotor up there and just saluting the folks inside because you feel so up, you know, literally uplifted. But also just, just you, you feel such a sense of accomplishment that uh, Clifford's figured out how this whole thing works. Well, um, even at the at the uh, beginning of the film, when he's flying uh, flying the GB, and then you know knowing that you know Billy Campbell's really in this mocked up uh, back half of this Waco biplane, and he's in there, and he's somebody who's not really comfortable with flying. He doesn't really like to fly, which is impossible for me to grasp, but <laughs> I know it's true. And his whole you know watch this PV when he does that nice uh, nice pass right down the runway and everything else, and and I'll tell you, when, um, for me, particularly when I've flown, you know, a nice vintage airplane, some, something old, something from this era that really ignites that whole romance in me, that's, he captures it perfectly. You've just got that, that happy look on your face. You're, you know, you're laughing and you're, you're loving every second of it. And so you can only imagine, you know, okay, well, if the GB is that much fun, then my gosh, strapping this rocket on your back. And putting yeah. on that beautiful helmet that we see for the very first fraction of an instant at the end of this minute, you know, putting that helmet on—that's uh, that's just got to be amazing. 
you know one thing this film captures really well and i think you guys may i think you guys touched on this in a previous episode so if i'm i'm treading on your old territory please forgive me there is a sense of california like Cal- the if there's a consistency in the american history of the united states history in california it's of people coming from everywhere to this state to in some ways reinvent themselves but also to push the boundaries of technology of commerce of art you know we're here's where we're gonna go and push and and push the boundaries of what we want to do and you see that today still with the silicon valley and everything like that and there was a sense of innovation that was going on in california at the time that this film took place where there was aviation there was there was agriculture there was technology movie making was going all these sort of like california was a place to sort of say okay what can we do now? How can we push it farther? How can we make it bigger? And without the baggage of being from the Northeast or being from the South. And so you got that sense with, in this scene with PV there, just, you know, with the saw, he's, he's always tinkering. He's building stuff. He's tinkering with stuff and always trying to improve, always trying to be bigger. And you see that personified in the movie with, the, the folks in Hollywood making the movie and with Howard Hughes pushing the boundaries for him as well. But that, the film really captures that, that this is a place of pioneers, you know, and, and people who are, who aren't going to be held down, who right. are literally going to fly to the, try to f- see that the sky's the limit. Well, you mentioned, you know, Palo Alto earlier. I've got to interject that I was born in San Mateo. Oh, so there moved, you go. moved out of that area when I was pretty young, but that's still where, where my roots are. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, in this era, um, certainly in aviation and entertainment and some of the other things you mentioned, I kind of think of, of at that time, California sort of was to the U.S. what the U.S. was to the rest of the world. Right. You know, California was sort of the America of America. Yeah, and it's where you read, like, like it's funny, like, I'm, I'm a native New Englander, but my family moved to California when I was in high school. When I was growing up in, in Connecticut and Massachusetts, people like identified with themselves as like, Oh, I'm, I'm Irish. Like I'm a Sullivan and I'm Irish and I'm, a, and I'm also the other half of my family is Italian. And so people like, you know, I'm Polish and, you know, Russian Jewish or whatever you identify your background there. And then when we moved to California, I saw that people didn't identify themselves like that. Like that had been purged somewhere right around the time they were eating each other at the Donner party. And, <laughs> and Man, now those were the days. And now people were like, oh, my family's instead of my family's originally from County Cork. It's my family's originally from Maryland. My family's originally from Pennsylvania. It's like you remember, like, it's like a second migration. It's like yeah. they had to reinvent themselves once. And now we're going to reinvent ourselves again. And you get that even if you work in a like you see that there is a sense of we're not going to be like the Northeast that still exists. Sully, thanks so much for being on the show and talking about uh, about this. I know it's it's great being able to talk about a movie that everybody loves. I mean, it's and that not everyone talks about. You know, like everyone talks about you know you know Star Wars and and you know you know Raiders are films that everyone knows, but like you know this is one that's like this is like a a, a special gift for us that with those of us who really love it, it's like when you love an indie band, 
You know, it's yeah. sort of like, yeah, we're, we, we're on the ground floor on this one. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I hope if anything comes out of this uh, podcast that other people will say, yeah, I should give it a try and, and watch it. It's only 109 minutes long. And yeah. uh, they've already heard a half an hour's worth of it. Um, but yeah, thank, thanks again for being on. For uh, folks uh, wanting to hear more from Sully, please go to sullybaseball.com. Uh, you can catch up on uh, the, the old stuff and the new stuff that's coming in. That's uh, right. And uh, uh, more more to come soon. So so check that out, sullybaseball.com. Of course, with us, you can catch us on uh, all kinds of uh, social media. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Rocketeer Minute. You can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Rocketeer Minute. The big site, uh, rocketeerminute.com, where you can catch up on previous episodes, catch some cool swag, and talk to other people about the, uh, the stuff going on on this show. Uh, please also check us out, iTunes and Google Play. We're, you can also find Sully Baseball on iTunes and Google Play, I'm sure, but uh, check us out. Uh, search for uh, Rocketeer Minute. Uh, click subscribe, and you get us hot and fresh every morning, actually the night before, so you get the early edition. So uh, check us out on all those things. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with uh, some more stuff about what's happening. Well, actually, we're going to go to the world of Hollywood. We're going to find out a little bit more about uh, stuff going on with a, a certain Errol Flynn-like character. So uh, check us out tomorrow, Tuesday, on the Rocketeer Minute. So until then, over and out. Go get him, kid. <laughs>